A warm welcome to the Agile Gorilla podcast. The Agile Gorilla is a collective of experienced M&A professionals located in Europe, the US, Asia, and the UK. So today's podcast is somewhat different from our usual conversation about an article or, or theme in the news. As it's uh, coming up to summer, we have chosen our books that we would give to the situation of, say, a CEO who hasn't done a deal before. And what one book or, or multiple books, as I chose, uh, we would give them to take to the beach to read, which would give them a perspective on M&A and, and how we would approach it for the first time. Okay, so the, the challenge we set ourselves today was what book would we give to someone who is doing a deal, uh, a good friend who is CEO of a business, and I've chosen five books. Now, I know this breaks the rule a little bit, but I believe uh, the CEO getting to their position is a, is a fast reader, and equally, they probably only need a chapter of each. Uh, ben, you and I worked with a client in financial services in London, and we actually ran a training course, like a 12-week training course with suggested reading. We took a chapter from different books to read them. So I might do that. I might say, read these different chapters. And I also might be saying to them, actually, depending on who they are, where to focus. So a quick high level is Mintzberg's Strategy Safari. Now, if they've got an MBA, they definitely need to read this Uh if they haven't thought about strategy more than a planning sense. So the idea of emergent learning strategies for me is crucial to understanding what you do post deal. So, so strategy safari, if they've got that kind of, um, uh, if they might be a little bit too focused on a planned strategy. If they're, I suppose part of it for me is through a deal, you're building the organization that you want for the future. You know, you're creating the culture through how you deliver the deal. It's one of the biggest change programs most people will go through. And so I'll be looking to build the kind of organization that I think would be successful and powerful. And so my second book would be David Marquette's Turn the Ship Around. So this is quite different. It's a book on leadership and written. I, I like books which take uh, a concept and tell it the way through a story, a bit like uh, the Phoenix Project for Software Development in Agile or, or some of the lean manufacturing books. And this is a lovely book about uh, leadership, uh, which we can come back to. You're dealing with people. M&A, yes, there's finance, yes, there's synergies, but at the core change is people. The person needs to understand people. So if they haven't read Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, they at least need to understand the concept that we're not rational econs that take uh, rational decisions. They need to understand that. And then... If they've got that, I might say you can actually practically use some of this stuff. So beware all the press you read about nudges, but but Nudge by Fowler actually then says just a couple of chapters. You can use the thinking of Kahneman and apply it in useful ways. And, and the simple thing will be the uh, uh, chapter on choice architecture. You know, what are the defaults you set to people and what are the defaults you set to clients? You know, so much you can do around pricing uh, post-deal and cost post-deal. Actually, there's a lot of nudges you can do. And the final one, uh, would be a couple of chapters from uh, Daniel Coyle's The Culture Code. And I like this because it's it's got a bit of the theory. Obviously, there's overlaps with nudge and um, thinking fast and slow. But there's some really nice practical examples about how 
culture can have a real positive uh, impact on an organization. So this idea that you can use culture to achieve your strategy. Uh, and this would give me some great examples there. So those would be my five books. And uh, there's a couple of nuggets I can go through uh, for each of them. What do you guys think with that? Is that a bit much? I mean, I, you know, th- th- you're right. They should be reading quickly in lots of different ways to absorb this information rather than just reading it, I'm sure. Um, I, I, the one thing I'd ask is that I suppose the contrast between your Mintzberg strategy safari and all that behavioral economics stuff that might end them in a complete fug in terms of what they do and where they do and where they do it because one is presumably very rational and and uh, a, a equals b and the other is um don't think about it like that at all how, how, how do those two things equate in terms of how they they start to uh, build out an integration process yes i suppose the strategy is a, it's a it's a really bad point ben i think what i take from strategy safari is very much how it's not strategy isn't necessarily a paper-based exercise a desk-based exercise a theoretical exercise actually a lot of the way things turn out the the strategies you've had have different approaches you know there's the entrepreneurial school the cognitive school the learning school all the different types of of ways of doing things but i think you're right i think i suppose the nugget would be does the person understand about uh, emerging and learning strategies and, and and things evolving differently and that that taking stock post deal and if they got that i think we'd skip the strategy safari i'd, I'd ask them one question and make sure they're, they're comfortable okay um other, the other thing i think i think this you know uh you'll not be surprised that my book which we'll talk about in a minute is also has a bit of behavioral economics about it because i'm slightly obsessed about it as you are um how applicable do you think that sort of discourse is in, I can see it works in human capital-based businesses, in professional services, in in organisations where lots of value sits in people's heads. But let's talk about, you know, an oil and gas merger or a industrial production merger where, you know, it's really not so much about people. It's about, you know, capacity, geographical penetration, all that stuff. I suppose my thinking is my experience is those deals don't exist as all the or the the one where it's just about the asset and not about the people because you know i've worked in some extremely asset intensive industries and it is the knowledge and skills of the people in that organization for how to exploit the assets and so the utilization and the performance of the asset very much depends on the thinking of the people who are driving it and so yeah i would very much say um on those asset intensive industries the making the right decisions depends on getting the organization behind you and looking for things that that might not be obvious and that comes from um a lot of understanding people's uh, being adverse to change and um their willingness to innovate Abby. my uh interpretation of your choice of books david was the thing that struck me is that some of them relate to what I'd call the rationalist school of strategy, right? Mintzberg sort of, and a lot of his peers, Michael Porter back in the day, um, a lot of them relate to sort of what Ben described as sort of, or at least I paraphrase Ben as describing as a rationalist view. And then you have the behavioral economic view, which is basically a reaction to the rationalist school of economics overall, which is people don't behave the way the rationalist might expect. And ultimately, 
it seemed to me that in almost in every industry, the decisions to merge or acquire or divest are made on a rational basis. But the outcomes, what really happens after the fact, is more a reflection of canum, you know, the 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 all the biases that people have, right? The uh, the ambiguity effect, the action bias, loss aversion, and a lot of the things that the uh, you know Tversky and Kahneman talk, you know, have done research on. And it seems like we deal with those only after the decision to acquire, merge, divest have been made, because. It you know all of a sudden all these sort of frameworks and the expectations created by the rational analysis don't pan out and you're like wait a minute why well people don't behave the way we expected them to behave they have a bandwagon effect where they move in herds and they're very afraid of uh, you know loss versus reaching for the upside and all the things and so I think that that if you had to, at least from my perspective, if you had to sort of pinpoint the fundamental tension in all of these post-merger integration challenges, it is that tension between sort of what the rationalists want to happen or should expect to happen and what actually happens because people really don't care <laughs> and people behave in different ways. Just one challenge to that, Abby, which I'm sure you could expect from me anyway, which is that I don't quite understand how rational it would be to do something where 70 to 80 percent of them destroy value. Now, there is a there is a bias to that. I don't know what it is, what it's called. What's it called, David? You know what it is, um, where you're predisposed to a positive outcome uh, just because it's your optimism bias. Optimism yeah. bias. Indeed, yeah. that one there. Um, so I'm not sure it's completely that the rational might. Well, I, I think it would be hard to argue for a CEO. That this is entirely based on on rational rational behavior when the previous history has been so disastrous. True, but there is a behavioral, uh, and like you guys, I'm quasi obsessed with uh, behavioral economics and Red Thaler even before yeah. years ago. But uh, one of the one of the biases is that people they take an inside perspective as opposed to an outside perspective, which yeah. is. The outside perspective, which is the base rate for mergers, is that, like you said, Ben, a significant percentage don't work out. But nobody actually in any of their planning, whether you're planning for a project, whether you're planning for a merger, nobody really always takes that as the starting point. They say, well, yeah, 80%, 70% fail, but this one's going to work because of yeah. this reason. And you, you, yeah. people think about that even in planning for projects. Well, they're like, my book, I can write my book in six months, even though the typical length to write a book and get it into publication is two years. Well, because yeah. I it just, and so similarly, I think it, it, even that is a, a, a product of this behavioral biases that we have in terms of why people make these rationalist decisions. Maybe the, the bias is that you think that, you know, reason is the only basis for making it, but. Mm. Um, you'd never that, build a bridge, you'd never build a road or a railway if you followed the outside, because you just see actually the cost always ends up double and the time ends up double. Exactly. Construction expect. projects are the classic example. You're right. Mm. So, so the one we haven't discussed, which I'd just like to touch on is turn the ship around. So I think the insects, mean, your summary of the the planned versus the, the, the rational and irrational aside, I think really summed it up. This one, I think, is is one where you're trying to get leaders within the organization and why I, perhaps I think it's, it's, it's my natural, it's the way I like to work where I like to empower people in the organization and let them make decisions. But I think in M&A, actually, this might be one of the reasons why I like it is that it's, 
quite often with a deal, you're buying a business you don't understand. You won't know the systems they're using. You won't know the people. You won't know their clients or the profitability. It might be a, a, a new space for you. And that kind of space where as a manager, actually, you're quite exposed because you don't understand and you don't have you know decades of, of track record or a deep understanding of that organization is you need to be able to empower people and let men make the right decisions and find, have a framework of working that's different from maybe your your usual base of working. And, and that's a, a great example by David Marquette. Perfect. Abby, do you want to go next? Absolutely. So my book takes us naturally a different perspective on it. It is a book called The Outsiders by, a, uh, by William Thorndike Jr. Now, The Outsiders became famous as a book because Warren Buffett, in his 2012 annual report to shareholders, recommended it as one of the best books for people to read. And so naturally, it became a bestseller. And the business literature is filled with books, good to great, in search of excellence, which basically follows a, a pattern, which is, let me find people who are successful or companies that are successful. Let me figure out what they're doing and find common commonalities, and then basically deduce that those commonalities must be responsible for the success, right? Which is in many analytical and rational ways flawed. It's a flawed way of thinking about what causes success. But um, this book does that as well. And what it does is it takes a look at eight or nine, I forget, business CEOs who have been extraordinarily successful from a financial point of view, and I'm going to emphasize it's viewed and it, the recommendation was made for people who want to understand CEOs who think like investors or CEOs who investors will like. And Thorndike himself, I believe, is a private equity investor. And so that's the perspective that he's going. Now, the reason I chose this partly is because it's more aligned to my frame frame of reference of the world but also because it says a lot about acquisitions and integration and corporate culture. And often those observations are, are as interesting when they're coming from people who normally don't care about any of those things, right? When somebody's entire career is corporate culture or integration, that's one perspective. The other is for somebody who's an outsider to this and sort of arrives at these conclusions around it. And what I found interesting about the book is that it has some very interesting sort of, I would say, meta points to say about the cultural features of successful companies that are successful from a financial point of view. And, and that's what, and so, you know, the companies that this, uh, that this book talks about include companies like, uh, you know, the Washington Post when Catherine Graham overtook it. I believe it's very Americentric, so um, I'll apologize in advance for that. But, you know, uh, a guy named uh, Tom Murphy at CBS, when he turned around CBS, Henry Singleton, who was the founder or CEO of Teledyne, which was one of these big conglomerates, which is uh, very similar to a couple of the conglomerates we've talked about in other, in, in other podcasts. And so it also includes Warren Buffett, which is probably why he uh, really enjoyed it. But it captures a, a pretty diverse set of CEOs facing different circumstances. And the common thing, and if I had to summarize the book in one sentence, is all of the CEOs instilled 
in their corporation an ownership culture. And which touches on something, David, you said specifically about turn the ship around, which is this sense of empowering people and giving them accountability. And all of these, the cultural change, and they did a lot of other things, but the cultural change that all of these, all of these CEOs did, which the book really talks about, is that accountability and an ownership mentality are the keys because you basically that then you allow people you allow people you can delegate to people and you can make force them or let them make decisions way down the chain which allows for large companies to be successful where if everything is being done or all the key decisions are being done at headquarters it's a recipe for disaster and so instilling this ownership culture and a sense of and an ownership culture isn't purely financial it's, you know, if I own my house, I'm going to do a lot of things that help the community as well. So it's not just a purely financial point of view, although the book tends to lean towards thinking about things in terms of shareholder value. But I think that give in the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years since the book was published, I think one could abstract from the narrow recommendation of thinking like an owner being thinking like a shareholder to thinking like a shareholder who actually cares about the overall industry and the communities that they exist in and the fact, you know, you know, the environmental concerns that their, uh, you know, production facilities incorporate. So I thought it's a, it's a useful book. It's a, it's still a very interesting book. The book casts these CEOs as outsiders, basically that they, they weren't raised in the culture of uh, herd thinking in corporate America, but, uh, I, I don't know if that's actually true because the background suggests that they did grow up in corporate America, but maybe they were different and, you know, probably iconoclastic uh, in some respect. You certainly want to be part of that group, wouldn't you? If, you, if you're talking about successful CEOs uh, and somebody says, we've got this book, it's all about outsiders, with, you know, who disrupt things. So they're like, yeah, I'll write a chapter about me for that one. It would certainly um, sign people up. Um, yeah, but it's true that, I mean, even in this podcast, we've talked a lot about the value of, of naysayers, right, in, in, in organizations that challenge things, that, that look at, look at the, the, you know, the, um, the taboo, so the sacred cows out there and say, why are we still doing that? And no one's got any corporate memory as to why that still happened. So it gets, uh, it gets changed. So I think there's a, there, is, there is value in what you're describing there, Abby. So it's interesting. So to your point, Ben, one of the people is this uh, guy, Dick Smith, who took over uh, General Cinema. He was the CEO of a cinema chain. And uh, he inherited it from his father who passed away. And uh, he was 37 years old. And the one cultural change he made, which speaks to this idea of encouraging dissent, is he basically encouraged everybody in the firm, but especially the executives, to disagree with him. And in fact, not engaging in respectful but vigorous debate um, meant that you couldn't be candid. And so the idea of, if, you know, he basically said, you have to think about this as you're owning the company or you're a part owner and you're defending your ownership right and encouraging candor, uh, admitting mistakes, pointing out the mistakes of others is one of these things that, you know, a lot of large organizations in order to work smoothly basically discourage. Right. And, uh, you know, I think that this view writ large is 
something that at least people talk about when they talk about Russia right now, right? Where Putin is very isolated, relies upon three or four key advisors, and that's it, and doesn't really have a sense. And people attribute that to some of the strategic mistakes in Ukraine and elsewhere. But I think that that, uh, so uh, this idea of having a vigorous debate is, and dissent is, I think, uh, goes hand in hand with having a sense that you're an owner, owner of this business as well, and you have to be. Now, how does it, so Abe, how does this fit with M&A in that pre-deal, you get the sense that it's the CEO that's ultimately taking the shot, uh, that making the decision here. It's very much reinforced that, you know, it's the CEO uh, who's, who's going to make their buy-no-buy decision. So you, you're not necessarily getting that ownership unless that, that, that he or she is is somehow pre-deal getting that. And then post-deal, Ben, we have, we have committees uh, and we have duplicated roles in key positions, decision by committees, things working cross-functionally, almost as you can get the absence of accountability and ownership in those kind of structures where people don't know what they're responsible for anymore. That uh, so one of the things, at least based on reading the book, you get the sense is that there isn't a CEO making a decision. And uh, there's a phrase that they say that, you know, they look, uh, the acquirers tend to have strong cultures across the management team, a very strong set of shared valued values, a sense of what they want to accomplish that everybody is rowing in the same direction on. So the CEO is not he or she is not the main decision maker. It's sort of made by the team. And it works best, and this is not explicitly said in the in the book, but it works best when these strong cultures absorb weak cultures. Because the weak cultures, you can absorb it, you can modify them, you can shift them. It works, it's most difficult when you have a strong culture acquiring a strong culture. <laughs> a company with a strong culture that has its own set of values that they're unwilling, because at that point you need to break things apart to fix them. Otherwise, or you have to keep them independent. And in fact, the Teledyne example, the Teledyne example said that Henry Singleton, who's the CEO, basically had this view that he doesn't want to acquire a company that's got a poor culture. And if you acquire a company with a strong, deeply rooted set of values, you're not going to be able to integrate. And so he basically took a view that we're just not going to integrate. We're going to let teams that excel continue to excel as the team that they are. And if they choose in the future to integrate on their own on their own um, merits, they'll, they'll do that. But we're not going to force that for right now or ever as long as they continue to perform. And so that is, uh, I'm trying to think of the, what was that technology acquirer who didn't- Broadcom. Broadcom. That's exactly right. So this reminded me of Broadcom strategy because it was exactly that. All the CEO did was make the act. Well, the senior team did is make the acquisition dis- uh, decision, and then they let the teams run themselves, more or less. Uh, and integration wasn't a critical part. And so this that was an interesting example. Yeah. Shall I go on to mine? So my book is called Rebel, Mat- Rebel Ideas, and it's by a guy called Matthew Syed. Um, and he's an interesting guy. He's, you know, he's one of these, um, I suppose you might describe him as a 
as a pop academic, you know, you'll see a lot of these writers out these days. You know, Cole's definitely one of those. There are a whole bunch of people out there who take examples from the real world and use them to talk about some academic analysis in a way that sort of makes it very accessible uh, for for readers um, uh, and, and, and it shows some interesting insights. His his primary point, and the the, the, the the subtitle of this book is called "The Power of Diverse Thinking," is that what he what he's describing is that diversity doesn't just exist on a gender and a sexual orientation or a you know a racial uh, basis, but it also exists in at the cognitive level. And that um, the best teams to solve things tend to be cognitively diverse uh, as well. Um, He makes a distinction, which is, I think, quite interesting. He says, look, this is not about, you know, the problems perhaps that we were trying to solve 100 years ago around, you know, what's the path of the moon? So the, the, the sort of linear issues are things that clearly you'd want um, you know, the, the relevant scientists to be in the room together to solve. But more, it's about these issues which have got lots of complexity to them. And, and you know, and where a different perspective on it is really interesting. He he um, he, he talks about the fact, you know, um, it, this cognitive diversity is also not, and the reason why I think he distinguishes between uh, these other forms of diversity and cognitive diversity is that, you know, you could have a, um, you know, uh, people who come from lots of different, uh, places and fit within very di- very different buckets of diversity, all having gone through Harvard at the same time, and therefore have the same thinking. And so this is not, it, and their, their influence therefore is they, they've been influenced to some extent to think in a similar and, and, and uh, sort of way. And that really is not what we're looking for here. One of the great examples he talks about is is the solving of Enigma, um, which was obviously the the, the German coding machine, um, which was done at Bletchley Park in the UK. Where famously the recruitment method was um, to uh, ask people to come and, and solve a, te- a, a telegraph um, crossword puzzle, and those who could do it at a certain period of time um, were invited to come and, and, and effectively apply for the role. And so you had a very broad mix of scientists, linguists, um, all sorts of people coming through that. And, and in, in fact, the solution to Enigma was very much not just a science-based issue; it was very much driven by all this. Different uh, thinking that was brought uh, brought to, to to bear to it. Um, so fascinating uh, insight. Uh, there is a cultural dimension to it as well. He describes a situation where um, if you uh, showed uh, some Americans a picture of a of a of a uh, the the ocean, uh, they would be picking out the fish. Whereas if you showed the Japanese that picture, they would be looking at the rocks and the sand and the, the uh, context that sits around it. So very different sort of uh, concept from the way that they uh, they they think about it. Um, so. Um, it's you know he talks about innovation. He talks about it's interesting that he's you know he talks about these two different types of innovation that companies go through. The incremental where we're trying to improve something from a uh, from a um, uh, you know uh, uh, that already exists through to the, the the recombinant, which is where you're trying to think about innovation in terms of the com- combination of different scientific or different skill sets coming together to generate something that's very new and uh, in and and and, and forward thinking. In a way, behavioral economics is exactly that. It's a combination of psychology and, and, and economics. Um, so a fascinating uh, set of stories. Um, um, you know, everything from um, the the sort of corporate blindness of the CIA with regard to 9-11, where 
the, all the indicators in the, in, uh, were out there for people to see, obviously in, in context of hindsight, but the fact that they were really focused on recruiting from one particular, um, yeah, uh, you know, from, from a largely white population, largely male, uh, largely having gone through the same sort of business schools and, and educational background. Um, and that just left them really cold in this situation. Talks about a really interesting example of, um, of the biggest disaster on Everest, where um, again, um, the, the, this is another little dimension. It's quite interesting. It goes a little bit to what you were saying Abbe, earlier around this whole concept of a strong culture. So in this case, he he describes leadership in the context of dominant leadership and leadership with prestige. And dominant leadership effectively discourages anything that takes place outside of that environment. People start to fall in line very quickly. Uh, and so you end up with this very narrow-based um, form of thinking as a consequence of that process. Um, I... I um, I, I was thinking about what the relevance to this relevance of this to um, to an integration might be, and one of my observations about uh, an integration process is that often hierarchy sort of disappears in that process because everyone is slightly at odds with what they're trying to do and where they're trying to do it, and so you get much more of a sort of breadth of, of, of cognitive uh, skills and abilities coming into the room together, where perhaps in the past they were very much siloed in their own little space and, and area. And, and so it's a real, it's a great opportunity to start to, to deal with that. Part of the reason why that happens is because the problems that people are facing into are complex, and there isn't an obvious solution to a lot of things that we're trying to do there. So it sort of encourages the possibility of people coming from a, a bunch of different disciplines uh, that come to that place. Yeah, so that's my book, um, Matthew Side, Rebel Ideas. Questions, thoughts? I love the anecdotes. And I think that uh, the idea of cognitive diversity in complex situations is obviously it's one that's gotten a lot of prominence lately, partly because of the need to have people of diverse backgrounds. But I agree with you. One of the things you pointed out is that this idea that even people who have different ethnic, cultural, and you know, gender backgrounds can still basically all conform because they've been trained in the same environment, right? Like you said, and this idea, it, uh, the the CIA example was, you know, there was for most of its career, the CIA's uh, recruiting strategy was uh, male. What is it? Male, pale, and Yale. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was sort of the the basic model. And uh, but the good news is, I have based on the limited knowledge I have from podcasts and so forth. You know, a lot of the national security establishment in the Western Hemisphere is now viewing, looking outside of that narrow scope uh, yeah. as valid, which is good. There's a comment I think which is quite interesting. Is he says that. Um, it's not necessarily comfortable being in that cognitively diverse environment. It, it is a place where there is more debate and heated discussion and there's less agreeing and there's much more um, argument, if you like. So in some ways, that's probably why we all morph towards our our you know our our safe place um uh in fact he actually talks about psychological safety as being a, a prerequisite to enabling this sort of cognitively diverse environment to take place and start to build in the organization um but it's it's interesting that you know in, in ch change generally is not a, a very comfortable place and he's describing a formula where 
it's going to be quite robust. It's going to be, um, you know, a, a challenging environment. It's not going to be one which uh, complies easily with perhaps the, the norms that you might expect. One dimension I wanted to ask both of you about is the following, right? So let's assume you have a very cognitively diverse environment in a post-merger situation. The other dimension that tends to, uh, that that I've read about is sort of this idea of power distance, mm -hmm. which is different cultures have different levels of um, hierarchy, uh, degrees of hierarchy, uh, centralized authority versus distributed authority. And I think that you could have a very diverse set of uh, inputs, but if the decision is made right up by one person or a few people at the top, a lot of the what I'd call non-traditional opinions basically get cast aside. So mm. you do get diverse opinions and people basically disregard them. You know, this 9-11 example uh, at the CIA, I listened to a YouTube uh, documentary. It's a legit documentary that happened to be on YouTube where it turns out there was a team screaming at the top of their lungs that Al-Qaeda was going to attack. But it was basically comprised of women who yeah. were put in a basement. And, you know, during the Cold War, Islamic fundamentalism or terrorism wasn't a thing. And so these were they just weren't those those voices weren't respected or given the right level of attention. And so there were people basically pounding the table. It's just they got disregarded by the people at the top which speaks to this power distance question. And I didn't, you know, too much power distance, you'll disregard the benefits of diversity and not enough, or if it's too little, it just becomes a free-for-all where no, nobody ever makes a decision. And I, I wonder whether there's some optimal, right? That you take the inputs, you consider them, you have enough respect and egalitarianism across the organization, but ultimately people make decisions and move on. And I didn't know if, if in your actual, in your work experience, you've seen too much, too little, and in the middle. I suspect we've seen all of it and we don't. Um, I certainly yeah. have. I mean, it, I think it's it, it it sort of comes back to your outsider question, which is the, the ones that have been successful to me um, have typically been populated at leadership level by people who haven't spent all their career in that environment, or or for or at least for whom this is such a significant shift in the the nature of the organisation that they're now working for or working with or working organisations working for them um, that they have to think on a broader basis. It's almost you know it's the same analogy. You know, if I owe the bank fifty thousand pounds, that's my problem. If I owe them five million, that's their, that's their problem. There's a little bit of that of that dynamic going on in an organisation which is going to such. A, a huge change um, where um, you almost can't ignore the other factors going on and the risk is too high from an individual perspective. So you can persuade and change behaviour as a consequence of that. Um, and awareness is much, much higher than it's ever been before. I think that point really, that question I've really links the two sides where, yes, rebel ideas, you need the diversity and that links back to your point about the outsiders where, effectively to get that you need to push decision making further down into the organization and allow um more people to put their forward the, the thoughts forward and encourage that uh the, encourage conflict and encourage critique of of everything you're doing i think it's uh, just one summary from me one summary point for me i think it's fascinating that all of us have ended up pretty much in the same space from 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 your from your arch econ 
in the States, um, Ali Pandey, um, through to the sort of mid-level econ, uh, David David Boyd, to the sort of, you know, soft and fluffy guy here up in Scotland. I, I think since we were all uh, anti-econ <laughs> maybe, um, where we've all ended up in, in a similar place in talking about books that um, encourage a breadth of thought around the human condition and the human reaction to change and a response to that or an ability to perhaps help manage that process in a way that is as far from the sort of dominant leadership as you could possibly get and all about um, uh, trying to inspire sort of collective uh, sense of purpose and direction uh, and engagement from that. I think that's fascinating as a, as a process and maybe it's a reflection of our many years of doing this. Well, hopefully we've given some good inspiration for our listeners for what to take to the beach with them this summer. Thanks very much for listening. We love hearing from you. If you've got any ideas, comments or critiques, please just let us know via Twitter or uh, LinkedIn. Thanks also to Samika for providing the music. See you soon.